A homeless encampment is being cleaned up. What about resources? These folks are vulnerable. I think that they're at risk out there. And this notion that they're able to care for themselves, I think, should be challenged. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. There is money available to protect your home from wildfires. We really started looking to the homes and what we could do to harden the homes against wildfire. And how much will San Diego have to pay for pension cuts, plus a Black History exhibition and five works of art? That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. City crews have started to clear a homeless encampment that has grown significantly in the city's Midway District. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria has called the situation wholly unacceptable and has indicated that decisive action is being taken to avoid a potential health crisis among its residents. He spoke with KPBS this morning with more on the state of affairs in Midway. These folks are vulnerable. I think that they're at risk out there. And this notion that they're able to care for themselves, I think, should be challenged. I think we have uh, folks who are obviously deep in mental illness, deep in substance use, and that we need to offer them more than what we currently have. Joining me now is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman, who was on the scene at the cleanup this morning. Matt, welcome back to the program. Hey, Jay. Hey, so you were there this morning. What were things like on the scene? These sort of encampment cleanups, they're really tough to cover, Jade. I mean, you have a lot of emotional people out there who are having to make a lot of tough decisions about what to keep and what could go in the dumpster. Sort of to paint the picture for you, you know, this cleanup happening down, it's on Sports Arena Boulevard. It's right by Pacific Highway right there. It's right behind the big lots in the Goodwill. There's people living on both sides of the streets. Um, Today, city crews, they cleaned up about a quarter of the area. And just so you know, too, you know, they're not necessarily just moving people out of there. They give people a notice. We're saying, hey, we're going to do a cleanup. You have time to move your stuff. And basically, you know, as long as you drag it across the street, everything you leave on the other side is going to go right into a city dumpster. There are a lot of police out there, city cleanup crews, some Navy police out there, too. It borders right along a Navy property, but definitely emotional day for a lot of people out there. Mayor Gloria has indicated that one of the main reasons for the cleanup is the potential for disease outbreak. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's why Mayor Gloria says is the whole reason for this, you know, to avoid a bigger health crisis. He says that we don't want to see another deadly hepatitis A outbreak, and he wants to take action now. And he also touched on, you know, that the city's been getting a lot of reports of crimes that have been happening there and a lot of drug use. And they said that this can't be ignored any longer. And something to note too, Jade, is that this encampment is a little bit different from others in that, you know, you go downtown, you see you see some of these encampments that have regular cleanups. Um, those are not close to homes. You know, this one is very much an industrial area out there right by the sports arena right down the street is the city making any efforts to connect people with resources like temporary shelters or outreach services 
Yeah. So the city says basically, you know, before that they went out there and announced this big cleanup that they're going to do, you know, the first real big effort, they've had some smaller ones there, but they went out and they, you know, for the last month or so, they've been contacting people. They think, you know, maybe about 180 people live out there. And they contacted about 150 of those. And they say that they provided about 450 instances of service. Now that can be anything from the county personnel helping people connect with CalFresh and Medi-Cal assistance, which they said did happen, or it could even be connecting them to shelter. We know that, you know, of all these encounters that they had, they were offering shelter. They said that seven people have been placed into shelter. And the majority of those are in that new shelter that's just right down the street, about half a mile from where this encampment is. Do you have a sense of how many people are being moved from this encampment? We know that the city estimates that there's about 183 people, you know, on both sides of this block here on Sports Arena Boulevard, on both sides of the street. We don't really know if there's a sense of how many people are leaving because, you know, they were notified of this cleanup. And we saw a lot of people, there were homeless advocates out there too, that are helping people drag their tents across the street. It seems like people plan to stay there when this was an effort by the city to at least start to make that area more sanitary and more clean. To what extent will city crews be clearing the area? You know, the mayor says that he wants the conditions to be addressed. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that the city's gone tent by tent. They've been talking to these people, trying to give them extra time. The mayor says that this is going to be a multi-day cleanup. Um, I touched on earlier, you know, today they probably clean up about a quarter of that whole area. So they still have a lot of work to do. And it sounds like they're going to be doing that over the next few days. So we'll really have to see um, if they sort of step up their efforts or if it's just more of a, hey, move your stuff and let us clean the place and you can go back to where you were. So what will become of the people who are living at this camp? You know, we spoke to some people who were living there. Um, some people were there for quite a while. And these people said that they plan to stay, you know, that they have nowhere else to go in San Diego. And so we saw people dragging their tents and then they're going to be dragging them back. Something I will note, though, a couple of people that we spoke with, they were uh, disabled. And the city is actually taking that into account. You know, if somebody's disabled, like these gentlemen we talked to earlier, they did not move their tents. Like literally, if you look at the block, they, they got rid of everything else except these three tents and these gentlemen were in wheelchairs. So they're trying to make accommodations for people. But yeah, keep in mind, they're not necessarily making them leave. You know, they're not saying, hey, get out of here. If you come in here, we're going to arrest you. Uh, They're just cleaning the area right now. And you mentioned that there were advocates out there this morning. What's been the community response to the news of this cleanup? You know, definitely on the homeless advocate side, they say this is just another example of sort of a, a band-aid approach, you know, something we've seen downtown where, you know, they make uh, a lot of these unsheltered residents move across the street, they clean it up, and then they, ju- they just move right back in. So they argue that it's not really addressing sort of the root issue here. In terms of some of the community response, you know, we know what the mayor said, he's heard from businesses that they don't like this being out there and some of the crime that's associated with it. But in terms of residents, there's not a lot of, I don't think there's any homes that are super close to that area. So we haven't necessarily seen like, you know, maybe if it was downtown, you'd see something like downtown community groups coming together saying, hey, we need to address this. I'm not entirely sure that we've seen a ton of that as it relates to this industrial area. Mm. So to that point, are there concerns that another homeless encampment of similar size will just spring up after this one's cleared? I would have to say yes. But not only that, you know, keep in mind, these people didn't necessarily lose all their stuff. You know, they might have lost some of it that they had to leave behind. A lot of people that work with the homeless say that they can tend to be sort of hoarders. But that's why advocates are saying this is a Band-Aid approach, you know, cleaning up the area a bit, but it doesn't solve the root issue. And keep in mind, too, in that Midway area, you know, there is that big encampment there, but just go a couple blocks down, you know, toward the shelter, toward the actual sports arena building. And there's more people that are living on the street down there, too. So it's definitely becoming a bigger problem in recent months in that area. But It seems like, you know, while this encampment may be getting cleaned up a little bit, at least for right now, these residents probably aren't going to be going anywhere. Matt Hoffman is our KPBS health reporter. Matt, thank you very much for joining us.
Thanks, Jade. California has seen wildfire destroy more and more communities in recent years. Many of those hard-hit towns have been in what's called high-risk fire areas adjacent to brush and grasslands. The irony is, as wildfire experts know, making several changes to the structures of backcountry homes, some of those changes relatively minor, could save not only the homes but the community from destruction. That's the idea behind a new state effort to retrofit thousands of houses in high-risk areas, offering up to $40,000 to cover the cost of the changes. And San Diego is the first county in the state to launch the program with 500 backcountry residences from Del Zura to Campo. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith. And welcome to the program. Good to be here, as always, Maureen. So what's been discovered about the way wildfire travels that sold lawmakers on this $100 million statewide effort? We've known in Southern California for a long time that wildfires don't need to start in forests. But around 2007, 2008, Northern California started to see these firestorms where the embers travel far ahead of the flame front torching suburban subdivisions. I mean, think Santa Rosa, even Paradise, where we saw the Camp Fire, the state's most destructive fire. And that really caught the attention of lawmakers. And they realized in these areas where the fire is moving through brush and chaparral grasslands and chaparral brushlands, that there's really not a lot that we can do in terms of trying to chop back the vegetation. It just grows back so quickly and there's only so much chainsaws can do. And so we really started looking to the homes and what we could do to harden the homes against wildfire. And what changes can we make to homes to harden them, to make them more fire resistant to wildfire? Some of the things that we can do are pretty inexpensive, pretty easy. Things like putting ember-resistant screens on home vents and just tightening up homes where firebrands can get into little gaps and work their way into attics and inside the home to explode the house from the inside out. We know from, for example, the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa that a fire can spread from home to home, basically leveling an entire subdivision when this happens. So things like screens on vents, boxing off eaves, replacing windows with double-paned windows. These are probably the first things that could be done and, and the least expensive. And are we talking about older homes here? Of course, yeah, because California over the last about 25 years now, right, uh, has put in place a bunch of building codes that require that anything that gets built today in high fire areas has all of these features already in place. Why is the state offering to pay for these upgrades, though? Couldn't they just require it? They could pass a law requiring it, although it would face tremendous pushback. People can't afford the upgrades that would be required. A lot of times, these can cost tens of thousands of dollars. It should be noted that building a new home up to the latest codes is not more expensive, but going back and doing the retrofits to the older homes can be very costly. 
And the program is voluntary. People who live in high-risk areas don't have to do this. How is it being received? We don't really know yet. I, I hesitate to make any predictions on how this will be received. I did go out to Dulzura, which is the first community that, to receive this money, and I talked to a number of people there, and they did have some concerns. Concerns mostly centered around the idea that this could trigger a reassessment of their home and potentially increase property taxes. A lot of these folks out in these communities, Dulzura, Petrero, Campo, are older folks on fixed income, and they really can't handle an increase to their property tax. Another issue could be that this would be taxed as income at the end of the year, and they could be stuck with a big, a big tax bill. These are real issues that people have because it's being sold as free money. But the question is, you know, how free is that free money? Are officials doing anything to maybe help ease those concerns? We talked to CAL FIRE here in San Diego and the county, and they confirmed that no, this will not trigger a reassessment of properties. That's what they've said so far. They've also said that the state legislature is looking at addressing the issue of whether or not this will be taxed as income. So it's not as if this is being ignored. People are working hard on these issues because they realize this could be a major disincentive for adoption to the program. You talked about the fire safety requirements the state now mandates for newer homes. Do we have evidence that those requirements really make homes safer from wildfire? You know, we do have a significant body of of scientific research that has suggested this, the most recent of which coming out of UC San Diego, where they looked at thousands of homes across California and even, even other parts of the West. And they found that those building codes really do seem to have an impact and reduce the likelihood that a structure, a single family home will be lost in a wildfire. So yeah, it does seem like the the research is pointing toward a pretty strong signal in terms of the value of those building codes. And will $40,000 the state is spending cover all the retrofitting needed in an older home? We should really talk about that that number, that 40,000 number. That's huge. I mean that that's a real big amount of money per home, right? We could do a lot with that. You could replace a roof. Definitely, you could install the ember-resistant vents. You can redo siding, potentially try to box off eaves and replace windows. This could go a long way for a lot of people in terms of making their homes more resistant. So yeah, $40,000 is a big chunk of money. And how do homeowners find out if their home is included in San Diego County? And if it is, how do they apply for the program? So right now it's being rolled out in Dulzura, Petrero, and Campo. So if you live along the 94 between Dulzura and Campo, you will almost certainly qualify. Folks that make a little bit more money may have to pay a percentage of that on a sliding scale. But you can find out the details by going to wildfiremitigation.caloes.ca.gov. Okay, and I think we'll probably have that address on our website, too, at kpbs.org. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith. Joshua, thank you. Pleasure, as always.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. City workers who were hired without pensions may be in store for some retroactive relief. The San Diego City Council has approved an agreement to restore pensions for nearly 4,000 city employees hired after Proposition B eliminated city worker pensions. Prop B was overturned by the state Supreme Court in 2018. The agreement with the city's Municipal Workers Labor Union is the latest in a years-long saga over city worker pensions and how to unwind the effects of the city's pension reform. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Can you remind us what Prop B was and what it did to change city workers' benefits? Proposition B was a citizen's initiative from 2012, and the main point of the measure was to exclude future city employees from the pension system. People may remember the pension crisis that peaked in San Diego in 2004-2005. The city had promised very generous pensions to its employees, but chose not to fund those uh, increases to their pensions, Uh, the assumption being that the stock market would just pay for them uh, and the city wouldn't have to pay any of its own money. This, uh, When this all came crashing down, it really decimated city budgets, and the city still is paying off all of the debt that it incurred from, from those bad decisions. The unions uh, representing city workers agreed to pay freezes. They agreed to other cuts to their benefits. But a group of conservative activists in San Diego thought that all of those agreements didn't go far enough and that the city actually had to abandon the idea of guaranteed retirement uh, or pensions altogether. So uh, all the newly hired employees, except for police officers, after Prop B took effect, got, instead of a guaranteed pension, a 401k-style retirement account, where the risks of actually losing money falls on the employee rather than, than the employer. Why was Prop B overturned by the court? The state Supreme Court ruled in 2018 that the city had violated labor laws when the city placed Prop B on the ballot. What this law requires is that the city has to, when it wants to make cuts or changes to uh, pay or benefits to um, workers represented by unions, it has to negotiate with those unions first before making the changes. The ambiguity came from the fact that Prop B was a citizen's initiative. Uh, Regular citizens gathered uh, signatures and and placed it on the ballot that way. And the supporters argued that it wasn't the city government that was taking these benefits away. It was actually the voters. But the justices ruled that uh, then-Mayor Jerry Sanders played such a central role in crafting Prop B and ultimately getting it passed that it was really a citizen's initiative in name only. And uh, the city has since been ordered to make all of the employees that were impacted by Prop B whole. In other words, uh, make it as if Prop B had never passed for those people in terms of their retirement benefits. Okay, how much is that going to cost the city? Well, uh, the estimates are that if every eligible employee opts into the pension system, the cost could be roughly $80.7 million. 
that uh, for for a frame of reference is more than the city spends on its entire library budget in in a single year. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's actually less than two percent of the city's total spending in a year. So this could have been much worse. The amount that the city will ultimately have to pay for all of this also depends on how many employees opt to actually opt into the pension system uh, versus how many will choose to stick with their current retirement plans. So we won't know the, the final number of how much all of this is costing for quite some time. And where is the money going to come from? Is this going to create a deficit for San Diego? For those employees who do choose to opt into the pension system, they will be required to use their uh, retirement funds, their uh, sort of 401k style accounts, to purchase credits into the system, and the city will then have to make up whatever difference there might be. Uh, so, so that sort of softens the blow a bit, but uh, you know, ultimately, the the money that the city does owe will have to come from somewhere else in the budget, like the pension debt that the city has been paying off for many, many years. This just means that there will be less money for all of the city's other needs and priorities. Now, are city leaders saying anything about lessons learned from this whole debacle? The biggest lesson that I think the city has learned is that it cannot ignore its obligations under state labor law. If the city wants to cut benefits uh, from employees or pay or, or impose any kind of new requirements, it has to sit down with the unions first to see if they can come to an agreement uh, and, you know, and, and rather than just imposing it without the union's consent or, or uh, letting them have a say. They may not come to an agreement. In fact, this just happened very recently with the police officers union, the city declared an impasse after negotiating with them over the vaccine mandate, and it Im imposed that mandate over the, the police union's objections. But they have to at least try negotiations first. The other main lesson is that if the city wants to hire qualified workers, uh, hire and retain qualified workers to do the jobs that keep the city running, it has to offer competitive pay and benefits. It's very well documented that the city's turnover rate uh, employee turnover rate went up after Prop B took effect um, because uh, employees could find better pay or benefits in other cities or counties or even on, in the private sector. So, and, and the city's just had this chronically high vacancy rate in part because of all of these issues. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. State investigators found a company with Burger King franchises in San Francisco owes nearly $2 million for wage theft. But that was a year and a half ago, and workers are still waiting for their money because the state hasn't scheduled a hearing to file their case. KQED's Farida Jabvala Romero reports thousands more low-wage Californians are also hurt by delays like this one. Back in June of 2020, the Labor Commissioner's Office cited a California company called Golden Gate Restaurant Group for failing to pay minimum wage, overtime, meal and rest breaks to more than 230 of its employees. One of them was Sonia Crisostomo. She worked as a cashier and prep cook at one of the Burger Kings the company operated. I met her outside the downtown office building where she now works cleaning conference rooms. We sat down in the lobby, and Crisostomo told me her Burger King paycheck was often short. 
She complained to managers, but nothing changed. No, simplemente no nos pagaban el overtime. Still, she stayed for three years. As a single mom, she needed the job to pay rent. Yo necesitaba el trabajo. I tried reaching Golden Gate's CEO, but he did not return my emails or calls. The company appealed the fines, and it has the right to a hearing at the labor commissioner's office. But it's been almost 19 months, and that hearing hasn't even been scheduled. The problem is the longer the case drags on, the harder it can be for people like Crisostomo to recover their wages. She's owed more than $38,000. That's money she needed when she was unemployed during the pandemic. Instead, she relied on a food bank to feed her family. Muy injusto que el Estado no... She says it's unfair that the state is not moving faster to make her old employer follow the law. If workers have rights, she says, they should be enforced. Meanwhile, Golden Gate is taking advantage of the delay, says Alex Campbell, with Legal Aid at Work. He represents these workers. The company that did this to them has been starting to move assets around and shut down restaurants in San Francisco and um, is potentially making moves to avoid payment altogether. Advocates say other large cases are languishing for years without a hearing at the labor commissioners. And they say the backlog has gotten worse during the pandemic. In L.A., investigators cited a construction company for $12 million. More than 1,000 workers in that case have been waiting nearly three years to get paid. In San Diego and Orange counties, 560 janitors are owed $4 million. They've waited three and a half years. That's unacceptable, says State Senator Dave Cortesi. He chairs the Senate Labor Committee. Government should be stepping in and policing these employers that are that are ripping people off. And, and it's not happening. And, and that causes real pain. The labor commissioner declined several requests for an interview and would not explain why hearings are delayed. But the agency has just 64 hearing officers statewide. They judge appeals on big wage theft investigations like the Burger King case and many of the 30,000 claims individuals file each year. Renee Amador is the legal director at Maintenance Cooperation Trust Fund, a janitorial industry watchdog group. They have way more cases than one person should be assigned, but it's because they don't have enough hearing officers. The labor commissioner has hired more staff after the legislature recently increased its budget. But State Senator Cortesi says the agency remains inefficient. This has been the case over the years with labor commissioners. This is not a new problem. And, and that usually means, you know, the entire culture of the operation needs to be addressed and, and revisited and restructured. He plans to hold committee hearings on the delays. I'm Farida Javala Romero.
The San Diego History Center's exhibit Celebrate San Diego, Black History and Heritage showcases the rich history of Black San Diego with fine art, heroes, and a timeline that walks you through the past that helped shape America's finest city and the region. Shelby Gordon is the marketing manager at the San Diego History Center and joins us to talk about this exhibit. Shelby, thanks for joining us and happy Black History Month. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So what can people see and learn from this exhibit? Well, you know, I'm a San Diego native, born and raised here. And San Diego Black history was nothing that I was taught in school. A lot of it is what I lived um, and what I heard through familial and, and friend relationships. But the exhibition really gives you a tangible, visual, graphic understanding of how complex how deep, how interesting, and how elevating the history of Black San Diego is. And there's also donated ephemera and fine art included in the exhibit. Why are these pieces so important to sharing the history of Black San Diego? Well, because I think you want for it to be multidimensional. You want for it to reflect politics, education, religion, the arts and culture, um, regarding family relationships and business relationships, social justice, and local political activities. So you want for, we want it for this to really reflect all of that. So for example, a local San Diego artist, um, Duke Windsor, has donated two of his paintings. But then we have really unusual things like we have the program of Bethel AME for their 100th anniversary. Now, you know, for our Black church, anniversaries are big and anniversary programs are even bigger. So for them to have donated to that to us and for us to be able to showcase that in the exhibition is really big. We also have um, an Olympic participation banner from Jackie Thompson. Jackie Thompson grew up in San Diego. She was the first Black female Olympian to participate in the Olympics. She ran in the Munich Olympics. So it's those kinds of pieces that thankfully people think, I want this to be a part of a permanent collection. I want for my experience as a Black San Diegan to be part of Black San Diego history, but also San Diego history. And there is a timeline featured in this exhibit. How much time is, is actually covered? It starts in 1798 with a Spanish colonial census document. So it starts there. It goes through 1820 with um, Don Pio Pica being the, the last governor of California. He was of African-American descent. Then it goes through issues of school segregation, of social justice protests in downtown San Diego, of the establishment of organizations like the Urban League and the NAACP. It documents the day that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech at what is now known as Point Loma Nazarene, was then known as California Western University. So that's May 29th, 1964, all the way to the date in 2010, 
when San Diego, the San Diego chapter of Black Lives Matter was formed. So you see just the scope of hundreds of years, multiple decades, how San Diego's population has grown, how they've evolved and formed organizations and advocacy groups, how they've advocated for equal housing, equal employment, equal schooling. You know, San Diego is your hometown. Are there any parts of the community that you lived in or, or maybe even your own family featured in the exhibit? Um, it's funny you should ask. Um, I was working with a partner and she specifically asked me, she said, Shelby, can you pull a, a photo of a choir, a Black church choir? Um, I want to use that in, in my uh, project. And so, um, you know, unbeknownst to me, I just see a picture on our digital site. You can research photos on, on from our website. So I found a photo and I, I just happened to be looking at the, at the caption and I see the name Joy Gordon. And it was my aunt. It was Nani, right? And I was just shocked. I showed it to my dad, of course. And he goes, he could tell me, I remember the day that that photo was taken. And I remember Mr. Baynard. And yes, you know, Aunt Joy sang in the choir for years and she directed the choir. And it was interesting because that was last February and Nani passed well into her 90s, that March. So it was really heartwarming. And it really sort of grounded me, I'm going to say, in my San Diego-ness, that um, my family has a history here, that we have been involved and participating and contributing and uh, partnering and friending uh, folks for many decades. I often say San Diego is a small town in a big city. And Black San Diego is even smaller. Black San Diego is a small, tight-knit community. And it's really a great joy and pleasure to have the opportunity to have that very rich history cataloged and archived at the Historical Society. And just imagine how many people that uh, pride and sense of belonging oh is extended to through this uh, exhibition. I mean, you know, if, if people want to contribute, um, you know, pictures, memories, stories, community sourced milestones, are they still able to do that? And if so, Absolutely. how can they do that? This exhibition is very different for us. One, it is primarily community sourced, but two, it doesn't have an end date. So if folks go on our website, sandiegohistory.org, um, and if they go to uh, current exhibitions and then they click on celebrate, there are forms there where they can share their story, upload their photo, and history is very personal and people want their history heard, they want it shared, and they want it archived. I've been speaking with Shelby Gordon, who is the marketing manager at the San Diego History Center. Shelby, thank you so much for sharing and joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. You can check out Celebrate San Diego, Black History and Heritage at Balboa Park and virtually online. For details, go to kpbs.org.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. We have a short list of five noteworthy works of visual art that are on view in San Diego County in February. There's painting, photography, sculpture, a mural, and even lithography printmaking. Joining me to discuss the selections is KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. And welcome, Julia. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start with Duke Windsor, Let's Eat. And I must say, these are still lives of some crazy big hamburgers. What's so unique about this San Diego artist's pieces? First of all, it's just that, the whimsy of a bunch of fine art portraits of hamburgers. I think that's so great. So he's already playing with this line between the sacred and the profane, the sublime and the everyday. And then um, he also adds gold leaf to the mix to really step it up. This is actually kind of a hallmark of Duke Windsor's work. We've seen it in his paintings of things like puddles in alleyways or even trash cans. It's really beautiful and striking. And in those settings, it's all about finding beauty in unexpected places or even elevating simple or mundane things into something really fine and grand, which is what his new exhibition's all about. It's called Nothing's Impossible, and it's a collection of hamburgers and traditional food still life paintings. It draws from the Dutch old masters. Can you describe this particular painting, Let's Eat? This one is a single cheeseburger. It's kind of offset to the side against a golden backdrop. There's really realistic glints of light on red onions. The tomatoes look red and juicy. There's cheese oozing out onto the table and then crisp bacon curling out in all directions. I'm vegetarian and it still looks absolutely delicious. I also really love the title here, Let's Eat, and how it's kind of an invocation. There's something pretty playful about all of that. It gives a whole new meaning to Impossible Burger. Duke Windsor, Let's Eat, is on view at the Oceanside Museum of Art now through March 13th. Next is Melissa Walters' Gravitational Lensing art piece. And this one is made out of paper, right? Yes, and that's it. Besides the magnets used to position and hang it and black paint for a backdrop, Melissa Walters installed this one several times since she developed it. She first made it during a residency at Bread and Salt that was back in 2017, and every time it's looked so different. The title, Gravitational Lensing, is named after this astrophysical phenomenon that makes light bend. It's when huge amounts of matter, like a black hole or clusters of galaxies, that's the kind of huge amount we're talking about here. When that gets between a light source and the person viewing it, the light will will bend. So Melissa Walter takes these long strips of paper and slices them into fine lines, kind of like waves, and then drapes and twists it all into place. And this piece is only on view until February 5th, this Saturday. It's at Cannon Gallery in Carlsbad, which is part of the Civic Library Complex there. 
They're open Tuesday through Thursday from noon to 7, so you can swing by after work, or noon to 5 p.m. on Friday and Saturday. And then that's it. Melissa Walter's gravitational lensing is on view at Cannon Gallery now through this Saturday, February 5th. Andres Hernandez's piece, My Faith Won't Move Mountains, But My Longing Builds Bridges Across the Mexican Border to Be By Your Side, is a photo that has a strong message behind it. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a solo exhibition on view right now at the Hill Street Country Club in Oceanside, and it's all analog photography, some video and poetry work too. And the photography is all taken from the route she takes after crossing the border. The exhibition's called Crying on the Blue Line Trolley. Her work in general, but especially on this exhibition, is about the rift that the border makes, whether it's in a life or in a community or family or in her case, what it does to her relationship with her partner. She was stuck at home in Tijuana when the border was closed during COVID. And I talked to Hernandez on the day the border finally reopened. This was a couple of months ago. And she told me a little bit about the spark for this photography exhibition. Yeah, it's always this anxiety and not only has the process of crossing the border like architecturally been designed to make you feel like you're an animal or like you're not human, but also just like the interrogation part is just frightening. So in these photographs, she's honing in on the architectural bridges and divisions, even the natural ones like fields or rivers. These things mark the changes between Tijuana and San Diego, and they're photographs mostly taken from the trolley. So in this one, the frame's divided into three parts, basically. There's a weed-filled landscape in the foreground, and then a pretty indistinct green structure, and then crisscrossing freeway overpasses in the distance, and it's against a sky that's somewhere between dusk or, or sunset and smog. The sense of place is really powerful in these works, but there's also just an undeniable movement to it as well. Andres Hernandez's piece, My Faith Won't Move Mountains, But My Longing Builds Bridges Across the Mexican Border to Be By Your Side, will be on view at the Hill Street Country Club through February 28th. This next piece of art by Marie Watt is called The Blanket Stories, Continuum, Book One, Book Three. How is this piece so different from other pieces? Is it an actual blanket? This is a print, and it was made as a sort of sketch or inspiration, maybe even a companion piece to Marie Watt's famous blanket stories works. And those are actual blankets or sculptures made out of folded and stacked blankets. And this particular piece is part of her printmaking work. Up close, it's countless lines of script, lines from stories or things people have said about blankets, uh, because blankets are often part of rites of passage, whether births or deaths, new homes, journeys, migration. So they're always packed with stories. And then those lines of text, they're colored and almost woven together so that from afar, it almost looks like a piece of fabric, almost looks like woven cloth itself. And what can we expect in the rest of this exhibition at the University of San Diego? Is printmaking also something that Marie Watt is known for? 
Yeah, so this is a mid-career retrospective, and this USD exhibition is actually the first time she's had an exhibition focused on her printmaking. And she came to printmaking after already working as a sculptor and participated in some pretty famous printmaking studios and workshops like Tamarind. She also did some printmaking with the Sitka Center for Art and Ecology. She's actually remarkably prolific as a printmaker, but they've usually been shown just alongside her sculptures. And in this exhibition, there are also some sculptures. You can see some of those uh, incredible blanket works, but the printmaking really does take center stage. Uri Watts' Blanket Stories, Continuum, Book 1, Book 3, is on view at University of San Diego Gallery starting this Friday, February 4th through May 13th. And last is muralist Tatiana Ortiz Rubio's intrinsically asymmetrical piece. Her work focuses on what separates the past and the future. Tell us about it. Yeah, this one is huge. It's the newest of Tatiana Ortiz Rubio's charcoal cloud pieces. And while from afar, it looks like this incredibly rendered realistic cloud, there's so much meaning to it. She is informed by time and its complicated physics and philosophies, kind of how time is both linear and circular or finite and infinite at the same time. And she is particularly curious about how we try to capture moments about these transitions that separate the past from the future. Tatiana Ortiz Rubio's intrinsically asymmetrical piece is on view at the City College Gallery from this Saturday, February 5th through March 1st. You can find pictures of these works of art, as well as details on how to see them in person, on our website at kpbs.org arts. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor-producer Julia Dixon-Evans. And Julia, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.